You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. Yay! Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more, your free music business advice radio show and podcast. Find us every Wednesday at Brave New Radio 88.7 FM on the campus of William Patterson University in Scenic Way, New Jersey. Or you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio as a podcast. I am your co-host, Professor David Kirk Philp. There's always silence after that. Nobody claps. But I'm also here with your other co-host, Dr. Esteban Marco. Me. I know. I forgot to uh, let you say your last name. We are alive. We are kicking. We're pre-recording what you're listening to from Nashville, Tennessee, at the Music Biz 2016 convention. And we are so excited because we just saw Little Big Town, Cheap Trick. Who else? Halsey. Halsey. Yes. Right. It was very thrilling. Very thrilling for right. Dr. Marconi's daughter. And I saw Jim Donio and said, great job, Jim. Right. You know what excites me, Dr. Stephen Marconi? What could that possibly be? Being mean? in the presence of Go Joe of Go. Of Go Joe Conyers the Third. Here we go. All right. Here we go. VP of Technology, Downtown Music Publishing, GM great. of so- Publishing Group, GM of Song Trust. So mm-hmm. is all that right? That's all right. I think our uh, PR person is going to want to drop the group at some point. Right, though. Yeah, She's uh, working on us, just trying to convince us. Interns there. At downtown, we've had interns from William Patterson. It's uh, had, downtown. Um, I'm sure they're great. Yeah. Hopefully, they're still working there. We have <laughs> Megan Johnson. I spent, I think, spent some time. She was there. there. She was at Razor and Tie, and now she's at Sony. There you yeah, go. Record well, she label. got hired at Sony, but she yeah. was an intern with during, the, during her MBA. Mm-hmm. And somebody else, I'll think of it as okay. we're talking. I'll start doing the yawn. We love interns. We yeah. are always hiring for interns. And Samantha is going for an internship at downtown. She's already talked to your people Perfect. about it for the fall semester because this. There uh, was a miscommunication over the summer. Right, but this so. summer you're uh, uh, interning at Memory Lane. Memory Lane. Oh, very nice. Yep. You know, you ever heard of Joanne Kelsey? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Joanne uh, is one of our alums, and yeah. she was uh, director of publishing. Or no, director she's of licensing. Uh, a li- licensing. Licensing at Razor and Tie. Right, yeah, I remember her. Razor and Tie, yeah. so now she's at Memory Lane. So mm-hmm. um, it's good to have you, Joe. It's good to have, we mentioned Samantha Shank getting her MBA in music management. So she's the one who booked yeah. this interview, put it all together. She's Very extremely good. nervous. Don't worry, Samantha. And we're not done, by the way. We're not ready for you, Joe. Well, we like having you here. We have to give thanks to uh, a few people. May we do so? Absolutely. (laughs) We want to give thanks to the Music Biz Association for giving us the space in which we are presently living. Boy, are we. We we love it down here in the dark basement of the Nashville (laughs) Convention Center, but they gave it to us so that we could have interviews like this great one we're having with Joe Conyers, the seventh. I should have said fifth. I started with fifth, halfway through the fifth. I saw it seventh, and I screwed the whole word up. How to explain we the joke? We don't need this. We don't need to explain the joke. So, <laughs> right. Joe, I would like to apologize to you and 
Joe Conyers and one Rose. and two. Junior well, and senior. Yes. They're rolling it. They're rolling around. <laughs> I know right they're now. very upset with me right now. So we want to thank Mia, the Music and Entertainment Industry Educators Association. They gave us a grant which helped pay for people like Samantha to be here. People like mm -hmm. Samantha, so thank that kind you. of person. Yeah. If you like that kind of person. We want to thank the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. And White Hat Management, who also gave us some sponsorship money to help pay for people like Samantha to be here. With artists like Charlie Puth. Oh, that's what? not them. Who? Your money, your bag. No, we're oh, going to be okay. there very soon. With artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Sharon Jones, the Bat Kings, and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. So, Joe, if you were in a band, if you were in a barbershop quartet and you guys are getting big and you need business management, do you know where to go? VBA-CPA.com. VB-CPA.com. All right. There we go. And that's our boys, Van Dyne Bruno and White Hat Management. So thank you, Joe. Already. I, we, you got to get your stuff counted, you know. My barbershop quartet can't do it without it. No. And um, just don't become a quintet because you're splitting the money too much. <laughs> that's true. That splits. You, you got to keep it. And then we want to thank Christine Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. Christine Oive has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson manage their investments, plan out their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement or if you have questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance and retirement planning, give Christine a call. The number, Joe, Please repeat after me when you get the opportunity. 732 732 455 455 1510. 1510. You did an excellent job. You have passed that test. Thank you, Joe Conyers III. Yeah. You could also email her, Christine at VeyWealth.com, and she would advise you and help change the life of you. She has a tagline, <laughs> Doctor. That tagline would be Now is my chance. Now get in there. Oh, it's not now is my chance? No, 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 no. <laughs> now is not yet. Your money. Your values, our focus. Our focus now turns to Samantha Shank. It's now the Samantha Shank and Joe Conyers the third show. <laughs> Take it away. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. First off, thank you um, for having me. Well, you already kind of stole all the titles I was going to say, but I guess so I'll many go good over. jokes too. Yeah, oh. I, I can't keep up. I really can't. It's Belly so laughs, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but just to get back into it, so Joe Conyers III, he's the VP and General Manager of Song Trust and the VP of Technology for Downtown Music Publishing. Um, since joining Song Trust, you've helped grow the company's offerings to over 250,000 songs and 50,000 writers with works recorded by Brandy Clark, Bruno Mars, Selena Gomez, Frank Ocean, and many other Grammy-nominated Grammy artists. Mm -hmm. At Downtown, Conyers has overseen digital media, digital and new media licensing, product management, and other technology-related focused efforts. And I think we're actually closer to 100,000 writers now with mm. over a half million copyrights. Wow. That was a bit of old bio. I gotta, gotta get that updated. <laughs> well, now we all know. <laughs> all right, so can you start off by telling us uh, specifically about Downtown Music Publishing yeah. and Song Trust and how the two function together? So Downtown is a traditional music publisher, kind of a boutique publisher. We uh, represent really, really amazing clients like John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, folks uh, like Mickey Six from Motley Crue, a lot of emerging bands and folks uh, working in all sorts of parts of the industry, whether it be uh, artists like Sergio Simpson, who just put out a really good record, uh, folks who write with Selena Gomez and Britney Spears and Katy Perry. Um, we also do a lot of uh, EDM out of Amsterdam. We just had a cut with uh, Kesha and uh, I'm going to screw this up. 
Z, what's the Z? Uh, Z. Z, yes, Z. Ooh, good ones. <laughs> and uh, so we've got music from uh, way back when, including um, we, uh, we represent witchcraft and kind of the Cy Coleman fa uh, family. Mm. And we have a bunch of other uh, really, really great uh, folks from Italy, Kerchi family uh, we represent, and uh, a number of other folks represent the States here as a sub-publisher. And uh, so Song Trust, we came up with about, gosh, about six years ago now, at least brought it to market. I mean, I think Justin, our CEO, had the idea many, many years before. And I came in uh, to, to build that uh, from really when it was just starting. There was under 1,000 songwriters. And it was just a little website you could join and pay a little money. And I brought our engineering team in-house and built out into a real application, made it really really efficient and helped it scale and uh, now I have a team of 10 people who work on that uh, half engineers and half operation folks and we are uh, using the same technology to power downtown's royalty dashboard so you can log in and check your royalties register songs check the status of your licenses if you're a downtown client submit set lists if you've gone touring across Europe or somewhere else uh, outside the United States and just keep track of you know all your all your statements and all your business you do with a publisher. And this is a bit revolutionary for most publishers because most publishers are still sending paper statements and you might text them your, you know, your splits or you're going to mail them in even or something, you know, archaic faxing <laughs> or something. Um, and so we get, we get a lot of uh, really great clients and we're able to help them out. And Song Trust is the difference, real big difference between Song Trust and Downtown. Downtown does a lot of creative services. We're pitching for film and television. We are helping uh, plug their songs to artists. A lot we do a lot of that in Nashville here, where we are, and uh, also do all sorts of other creative opportunities. Whereas Song Trust doesn't do any of that. We are not um, setting you up with co-writers. Uh, we're just a service to collect your royalties. Gotcha. So I think since we've been here, the two key words would be standardization and um, transparency. So really, is that kind of your guys, like your way of doing it internally? And it's something you're hoping, I don't know, do you think that this is going to extend and be a standard for the entire music industry? Do you see it growing like that? I, I think everyone's feeling <clears throat> they have to be competitive um, and give data to their clients. And I think everyone's arguably been relatively transparent. Um, you know, if you send some of your statements that have line items, that's relatively transparent. And most publishers are doing that. I like to draw this graph, and on one axis it says data, and the other axis says confusion, and it's just <laughs> going up and to the right. And that's kind of the level of transparency we're doing these days, where here's a bunch of stuff, and then try to make sense of it. So we've, we spent a lot of time working on a user interface that is very thoughtful about how to get useful insights out of the data we send our clients. Uh, because sending them a huge, you know, we can send them a thousand, nine thousand page PDF and they're not going to read it. And God forbid they might print it out, which I'm sure some <laughs> some business managers, that's probably not vb-cpa.com, VB <laughs> uh, you know, and store it for later. But, um, you know, so there's a lot of that still happening. And we want to really make sure that beyond transparency, we give the truth. Well, it's funny because uh, vb-cpa.com, Aaron Van Dyne is on our staff, and he's the business manager for KISS, for example. And he will get statements, for example, from the pros or, or from wherever, and he'll say they're 
they're this big, you know, I'm holding my hands very far it's apart. It's got a brick there, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, you, you can't physically go through all these nope. statements and, and know where there's a lot of trust going on with this alleged, I don't want to say alleged, but with this transparency of this mound of transparency mm -hmm. that is almost data overkill or oh, something. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way to review all that. Mm -hmm. if you, even if you bring in an auditor, you're not going to make the money. Yeah. Uh, nor do a lot of publishers let their clients really audit them, but uh, the the level of rigor we, we try to apply to that level side of the business is incredibly important to me. I think a lot about uh, how we make sure we get the most money for our clients, how we in do income tracking against the royalties we get from the PROs, the performing rights organizations, from our licensors. Um, we do a lot of income tracking. We're making sure that if your show was played on TV somewhere, we're trying to get the money as best we can. If your thing's on YouTube, if you got a, a video with your uh, music in it, we're gonna we're gonna catch it, and uh, we've actually put some a lot of resources and technology around YouTube, particularly. Uh, we have a th uh, software that we we own, and we built. I kind of invented it over a weekend a couple of years ago, and got my production software team to actually make it work for real. And uh, so it goes out and it looks for live performances, cover songs, all sorts of weird keywords like baby version and weird anime nightcore where they speed it up and makes weird squeaky noises basically of songs and. That, all that technology avoids the Shazam style technology that mm -hmm. YouTube uses to catch those kind of things. So it's so it's uh, a supplement to Content ID. Exactly, it goes above ID. and beyond what mm -hmm. Content ID does, and it finds those videos that otherwise, you know, when some kid's doing a really bad bass cover of Amber, one of our clients at 311, it's they're not gonna get caught by <laughs> Content ID. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they're they're out of tune. They're you know. They're they're trying their best, but you know, maybe that they fall down halfway through the video, and it goes viral. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's what we sometimes really hope for, and uh, on for many reasons. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, we hope to uh, to find those videos and it makes it really easy for our clients to get paid on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And recently, you guys just cut an exclusive deal with YouTube, correct? We did. We did a exclusive performance license. Uh, we, we deal directly with a lot of DSPs, but particularly YouTube, we have a very, us and many other publishers have a really great relationship with them. Um, partially because of that technology we built, we've kind of gained their trust, and we're able to administer our works on their platform very well. And we found that if, you know, going through the PROs just adds another, you know, delay in payment, and it adds another way to kind of screw something up because now there's two hands on the same assets and we feel like we can do it very well and so we've been able to take that deal where we're collecting directly from them and we're still paying writer share royalties out 100 percent we're not you know putting that in against advances or anything it's just it's still the same deal you'd have if you had uh, your PRO except everyone's getting their money faster and at a lower commission so you're going around the pro to do that now um, you created this supplemental technology did YouTube say, hey, wow, that is awesome. Let's license it from you so that we can do that for everybody? My phone number is. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Larry and Sergey can call me any day. <laughs> my, my, my phone number is, is open. But so until that happens, that's, you mentioned earlier, competitive advantage for you yeah. guys over name Cobalt or, you know, Universal Music Publishing or any of the others. Yes, that's correct. I mean, a lot of folks are just throwing bodies at the problem. Mm -hmm. um, 
and we are delivering data to them and have been for a very long time in a very good manner. Um, and no one else other than uh, some folks in the, in the movie industry and in the brand licensing space have really spent much time digging into, uh, into the, the YouTube technology piece. It's hard. It's really, really time consuming. And um, you know, we can only do it because we have the, the scale of both downtown and song trust to lay it over two sets of clients that you know, really want this technology. Can you code, or you you mentioned you you vetted this over a weekend? Can you do? How did you come I, up? With I this? did code a very very bad version of what mm -hmm. this was, and it, you know I think it just you know put it into my terminal and and gave me some ideas of what the videos would be, and then uh, using the, you know different keywords and I created a little queue, and then I, I gave it to my engineers who really made it work, and now it's super scalable and fast, and mm -hmm. they're much better coders than me. I don't. I don't the extent of my coding these days is I'll go in and maybe change some copy around and fix a spelling mistake or something mm -hmm. like that. That I've got a great team of, of software engineers and product managers that um, you know they're really doing the bulk of the software engineering at this point. Did you teach yourself how to do that? No, I went to school for computer science. Where did you go? I went to Pace University and studied that. I studied economics and I studied uh, some marketing and business management and uh, you know did a lot of tech product stuff worked on a lot of um, web media uh, publishing stuff. Uh, so launched a couple brands in magazine world and uh, some stuff in personal finance and some stuff in women's and fashion and uh, men's as well, like men's uh, lifestyle stuff. And uh, you know, was able to build some applications in that space as well. And that kind of set me up uh, a little bit for this gig, which I came in about five years ago on. and. Uh, I'd also done some uh, work in finance. So I worked at uh, Morgan Stanley, and then I did some uh, internal management consulting there and did M&A with the Ace Hotel. So I used to buy hotels and do management contracts and model out how all their food and beverage and key rates and all this fun stuff uh, really taught me how to model, model businesses, which was great. Just for our listeners, then you may take over again, Samantha. <laughs> you mentioned M&A, that's mergers and acquisitions. Earlier he said DSP, digital service provider. That's correct, correct. yeah. Okay. Yep. Just to get the lingo down for those of you keeping score at, on the uh, home game. Okay. <laughs> and I just want to comment, I think it's very interesting, like, like we always look as students for how do people get into the industry and to come from like a business background and me getting my MBA, I guess it's kind of reassuring that, you know, there is a way in and it doesn't always have to be a direct line in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, is there, what exactly, I guess, made you transition? It was just the experiences of the branding and everything? I met Justin, our CEO, and he explained how music publishing worked. And I thought that couldn't be possibly how that industry works. <laughs> and for some reason, I was crazy enough to try to try to solve some of the problems in this space. I think at the time, we had two people moving Excel spreadsheets back and forth and trying to register songs on all the PROs, the performing rights organizations. and. It was just really slow and hokey, and I was like, we, we gotta do something better than this. And filled out a lot of paperwork over the years. Got us affiliated with a lot of societies. I do not wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> Hundreds of hours I'll never get back. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if you wanna do this business, come talk to me, please, and uh, let's build a partnership because it's not <laughs> worth doing again. Um, it's a really hard thing to be a music publisher in, in 2016 even. You'd think that Somewhere along the lines, people would make it easier, but dealing with foreign countries in their language with very drastically different ideas of who should be a publisher is incredibly hard 
and even with the, the full backing of you know all the, the big names at downtown, to go to affiliate in even in what you would think would be Western countries is incredibly time consuming, complicated, and just a lot of red tape that they put in place to um, to validate publishers. Uh, and it's hard. It's really hard to get affiliated, and it's part of the reason why our service exists on Songtra's side because we wanted to be able to let people get the same style of collection that you got as a downtown client, but you didn't have to call anyone. You didn't have to spend five grand on a lawyer, you know, and our team just can't do deals, you know, say under 15 grand. It's just not worth our time Um, because by the time we put our lawyer fees in there and we're taking, you know, whatever our percentage is, it's barely breaks even. So unless it's a development client where, you know, we're really, really heavily invested mentally and, and creatively in a new writer, it's hard for us to say, hey, we know you're going to make some money, but we just can't spend the time to collect your royalties. So Song Trust came out of that thinking, like, how do we help them get their money? We don't have to do anything creative for them. How do we make it super, super simple? And, you know, the analogy is like, you don't always have to hire an accountant to your taxes. <laughs> you can go to TurboTax or you can go to, you know, one of the other software out there, Quicken or whatever, and just get get things done instead of having to deal with I think we originally had this bad video was someone's uncle's cousin's brother to to do your publishing so in our email correspondence when we first were setting up this interview you said that you know a lot of people you don't think they really understand what publishing is so I guess like for those people and for students listening what do you think is your simplest easiest way to understand publishing there's two sides of publishing one's a creative aspect that's the song plugging that's the you know uh getting other writers in the room with your writers. So, you know, you have this Rolodex or whatever of, uh, of contacts and you know how to get people to writers camps and you have friendships with lots of lots of other publishers, really. And you're saying, you know what, I've got this great writer. She could really do top line on this and I, I just really need someone who's gonna make a great production for her. Do you know anyone? And publishers know people. That's one of their big values, especially for developing writers. And they also pitch your music for film and television. You know, we have a large team of folks that are in LA, folks that are in New York and in London, working with ad agencies, working with studios, working with, uh, even nowadays, a lot of times working with the Amazons and Netflix of the world, trying to you know, pitch music to music supervisors, respond to briefs from music supervisors. We have a lot of those relationships. We get a lot of the inbound requests, and uh, that's the creative side of the business. The administrative side of the business is really about licensing, uh, it's about collecting royalties. It's about managing their copyrights. So we're dealing with labels to do mechanical licenses still. Even in 2016, we're still selling plastic discs. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, most of it's digital downloads. But uh, we're dealing with the services uh, where we can, mostly outside the United States and some in the United States, more so, in fact, in the last two years. And uh, dealing with all sorts of other licenses. I mean, we do licenses for toys. We do licenses for greeting cards. We do print licensing. You know, people forget music sheets, sheets and lyrics are still selling, and we have a, a great you know representative in uh, in our print music sub publisher, and they do a lot of great work for us. And they're working with all sorts of books and schools and arrangers and so on and so forth. And so. 
the administrative side of the business is all about that. You, you mentioned sub-publisher. Do you own the sub-publisher or it's a, or it's a third party and they do the work for you? Sub-publishers are, are contractors, you, kind of, you can call it that. Um, we are also sub-publishing other people, so it's when you represent someone else's catalog. And our print sub-publisher specifically only represents us for print publishing, so they do all their lyric licensing, not all of it, some of it. <laughs> um, we do some direct lyric licensing, uh, for example, with online, we, we deal with lyric fine ourselves. But they're, you know, they're the ones creating the books. Um, they're the ones who are dealing with the uh, the apps that do a lot of this, this stuff now. They're selling the the sheet music in, in a lot of uh, different venues. Now, outside the United States, traditionally, a lot of older older publishers have historically done deals with, say, I'm an American publisher, and they're a British publisher. They might do, have done a catalog swap, so you know you're. They're always like someone's godfather or something. You know, it's they're all super good friends, and they're you know you can have my catalog and, you, and I can have your catalog. And that was historically the way people did it, and you would represent their works in your country and vice versa, mm-hmm. and you would help their writers when they came to your country, and you'd set them up with you know your writers when they went to their country. Um, these days, it's more of a direct commercial relationship. Typically, uh, sometimes it's just for that administrative piece. The administration in the United States is a lot more complicated than it is outside the United States, and but also outside the United States, there's also some tax and other reasons why you might want to go with a sub-publisher. But tr- most of the time, you're going to go with a sub-publisher because they think they can work your catalog in their territory, whether that be plugging it, uh, pushing it to film and television in the local country, so on and so forth. They're they're charged with exploiting your works in their territory and collecting your royalties in that territory. So if the artist is signed to, or the writer is signed to downtown, the, the writer needs to use your sub-publisher in the UK or France or Germany or Japan. It's not the writer then goes and gets their own sub-publisher in those. That, that would be correct for most publishers. We are actually big enough and have a, a big network now of our own affiliations with those societies, and we deal directly with the PROs in that territory, with the, with the studios in those territories. We're uh, direct in about 42 different countries, sorry, 42 different affiliations, which cover about 90 different countries, uh, which is about 90% of the, um, the money in the, in the music business. Um, and so, you know, we had, a, I think when we first started, we had some sub-publishers in many more territories than we do now, but nowadays we just do it in really tough countries where either there's a, the, the PRO is maybe uh, corrupt or has challenges, um, to say the least, mm-hmm. um, there are certain countries. There's a PRO in, in Russia. The head of the PRO there was nearly beaten to death, so we use a sub-publisher there. <laughs> so we don't really want to go there uh, at this juncture. Um, and other places where there are uh, some tax treaty issues, where uh, Argentina, for example, uh, is, is difficult because of the, the it's about a 50% tax to remove money from Argentina. So mm-hmm. pretty much every U.S. publisher goes through the same character out in, in Argentina and he sends us nice letters every year about how uh, it's good news and bad news it's uh, 100% more revenue but bad news is 100% more inflation <laughs> <laughs> um, alright so I'm going to shift topics a little bit and uh, focus specifically on technology to- like topics right now so streaming is a big thing and I saw a panel about how exclusivity is kind of what um, 
these different services are fighting over and how it's kind of perceived by consumers in a different way. I was wondering if you had any idea on the streaming war and the fight for exclusive content. Exclusivity sucks for consumers. It's really bad for consumers. Uh, they just don't want that. <laughs> um, it's great for those streaming services that can afford to you know, keep paying out those huge advances and do those kind of marketing deals. But it's pretty clear that this is a windowing tactic and it works really well if you have a huge market position and you can still dig sell digital downloads um, and if you have an audience that will still do that then it's a great tactic I think it's a sh it's this is a short-term opportunity maybe a medium-term opportunity I don't know if this is gonna keep going because the labels I think have realized that if you are windowing you're not getting on the playlists you would be uh, had you had you uh, not windowed and the long-term money in in this business now is all about the playlist you want to be on people's playlists you want to stay there you want to get pole position um, that is the game that is the new promotion that's the new radio you know getting in those someone's getting in Diplo's playlist oh my god that's that's such a win <laughs> <laughs> so if you're if you're exclusively windowed and you're not on Diplo's Spotify playlist or Whatever the equivalent would be on title or or uh, or Apple, I think in the long term it's going to hurt your your you know your full dollar amount over the life cycle of your of your listens and audience. So as a technology person, we saw you know the MP3 and digital kind of disrupt it at least the the in the sense of artists making money. So do you have any predictions on how we're going to stabilize again and artists are going to start getting more revenue and be able to sustain themselves again? Subscriptions. Subscriptions, subscriptions, subscriptions. <laughs> uh, audio ad dollars are going to be, while it's going, the pie will grow a lot, there's so much inventory coming in line. I just spoke to a startup, a friend of mine, he's gonna put, his estimate is about a billion more hours of audio ad inventory out there, and, his, and he's not doing anything in music, so music is now competing against podcasts and other, other forms of audio content, even like this radio thing we're doing right now. Uh, you, you're going to have sponsorships, but maybe you'll have programmatic inventory, meaning you know real-time ads that are bid into uh, into this uh, the breaks of this this video or sorry this uh, this recording. And so we really got to get everyone to subscribe. We need to get them to pay nine ninety nine a month, and then hopefully that price goes up over time um, because there is some risk that. Uh, the larger tech-based streaming services uh, would just artificially keep the rate down to subsidize the rest of their ecosystem, whether it be hardware or, or uh, operating system or otherwise. But I think, uh, you know, if we can get 100 million to 150 million people paying for subscription in America and have similar uh, penetration rates across the, the world, we're going to end up in a really, really healthy ecosystem. Um, we're just not there yet. I mean, really, maybe in, in the first fourth of, of this of this whole whole movement towards this, you've got a lot of students still paying the four ninety nine. I'm sure you're paying the four ninety nine, Samantha. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully we keep you and get you up to nine ninety nine one day. And I think as that flows out, a lot of uh, you know it's going to take a couple generations of college kids to to really understand this is just cheaper and easier than pirating. This is just cheaper and easier than paying for digital downloads, and at least from a perception perspective, it may not actually be, uh, because I think the previous 
uh, average dollar amount paid by somebody into the, the music system is something in the $70. And if we're asking them to pay about $120, it's a pretty big jump. But I don't think people feel it as much when it's a subscription, and especially when it's you know just $9.99 a month. Yeah, smaller increments. Because I know Spotify can. I remember you can pay for it in your head. And I'm like, well, I'm not paying that much money. And I'm like, right. You know, mm-hmm. didn't even think about it that way. And Apple, Mu- Apple Music just put out a student rate as well, which is a great right. rate. So. But you got to subscribe the, la- the day before you graduate. You got to get the pay for the year, so you lock it in. For the, for the whole year. <laughs> I do. No, I love Spotify. It, it doesn't funny. work for high school. Doesn't work for high really? school. No, no kidding. Only. But you get the family plan in high school. Yeah, you could do that. But my daughter was trying to get, you know, just herself for high school. Had to be a college, hmm. and we even put in all my information. Wouldn't take it. You, you don't get a professor discount. No, not even the .edu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's all they used to really verify me. I mean, mm. it was a long time ago. I had to renew it. They, I remember they asked, like, oh, are you still going to school? It's been a while. Because I went right into grad <laughs> school, and I was like, yeah, I'm still here. We're all lifelong students. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. but we also think that with all these exclusivities and the windowing, just because Adele did the windowing, you know, and I guess Taylor did it in a different way with a different theme, but she did it too. But, but this exclu- exclusivity especially... If you continue to confuse the consumer, they might freeze and not do anything. Exactly. They can't find their music, can't do anything, they'll listen to Spotify for free or whatever. I, I, it, they're going to be annoyed. They're just, why is this like this? Most people are content with Pandora, let's be real. Yeah. And I even had people, you know, <laughs> the, the perception game is not there. I had someone who was, uh, who should have known what she was talking about. She was, She's in the music space somehow, but... She was confusing Shazam with Spotify still. So there's a level of mm-hmm. misconception. People don't have the full awareness of what subscription music streaming is yet. And mm-hmm. Apple's doing a great job of explaining it to the, the wider market, but they've just begun. Mm-hmm. 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 All right, so back on the track of technology, because you're a technology guy. Um, I did read an article about blockchain and Imogen Heap. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Imogen is a, is a client of ours at Downtown, and she's doing, beyond just being an amazing engineer, and you know she's the first woman to win the, uh, the Grammy for engineering, she is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and she is really on it about uh, the blockchain subject. We'd been thinking about it before she came to us to, to work with us, um, and before the Diego Wallach article, which is kind of the seminal article about blockchain, which I highly suggest everyone read because he took all the, the dumb ideas that we had and put them in pretty pretty nice way of, of uh, digesting it. Uh, so we've been helping her in kind of how does publishing fit into the, this new blockchain world. And she's worked with an entity called Yujo to basically release an album uh, or sorry, in MP3, like a uh, one-track download that you could also stream, and she's uh, got the splits of uh, on the artist side going to some of her uh, musicians on the track, and it's all done over a uh, a cryptocurrency called Ethereum, which is somewhat similar to Bitcoin, um, and it's its own blockchain. So if you don't know what blockchain is, uh, I'd highly suggest you check it out because it feels like we're in. Uh, you know, 1991 or 1992, and the internet's just coming out. It's, I mean, this is going to be a very big technology. The real value in it is that it's distributed. No one owns the, the data that you put in there, um, and it's verified. So no one can corrupt or falsify the information. It's kind of like as if you're writing down 
an append-only log. So you're just writing into a log and you can't actually erase anything. It's like writing it in with a permanent marker. So what that means for the music industry is that you can actually trust the data that you're getting because it's been verified by other folks. So if someone, you can't go back and, and delete your mistakes. So you have to own up to your mistakes. And what's really valuable in my mind is that uh, in the industry we had something called the Global Rights Database, which was supposed to be a way for everyone to bring all the rights in the world together so we don't have to keep updating these you know, hundreds of different databases with all the works that I represent. And uh, blockchain really has a pretty good opportunity of being that and being the place where we can all put our works and everyone can say, hey, I'm looking for John Lennon's Imagine. Oh, okay, it's represented by Downtown. Hey, I'm looking for some other John Lennon song. Oh, well, the Beatles are represented by Sony ATV, except for the first four songs, which we partially represent, and the one they did as a group, not as the Beatles, but all together. <laughs> <laughs> And right now it's really hard for, say, a music supervisor to figure out who represents what. And they have to email a bunch of people and it's a whole big pain. And uh, having one central place where all the info is would be huge for the industry. I remember as a student, I thought it was a lot simpler when we were learning about this. I remember um, my professor at the time told me, oh, we just go to whatever PRO's website and you can search if you do a, site, a title search. And I tried to do it. I was like, this is not as easy as I thought it was. Things, it was, I guess it was either grammatical mistakes I think it was. I think it was a major artist too, like the Beatles, and I could not get it. And I thought it was me, but I'm starting to learn that maybe it's not me. It's hard to get all this data in one place. Yeah, it's often out of date, and you know we try to update all these databases a lot, but you can only do it so much, and they can only respond so fast. And sometimes there's conflicts, and you don't know they're in conflict. And so you, as a supervisor or somebody else looking for info, you have no idea what's really on the other side. So you end up emailing a bunch of people and <laughs> calling and begging and. Mm -hmm. Hoping they know, and you know, if you really need something closed by 5:30 on Friday, you're gonna call us, and it's gonna be great. <laughs> and our people will be very happy and excited to talk to you. You right. mentioned on the, on the blockchain that if you enter the information incorrectly, you yep. said you do have to own up to it. But totally. is there an override? I mean, how do you then make turn the wrong into a right? How do you make it? You have correct? to say I screwed up on that. Change it to this thing. To you, to whatever the error would be if you made an error whether that be, say, an accounting error, you paid the wrong person or something. Mm -hmm. um, you don't necessarily have to do payments over the blockchain, but say you incorrectly said, oh, I actually represent um, Michael Jackson now. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oops, nope, I accidentally put Michael, I should, I meant Michael Raxon. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. And, you know, I can go in there and say, oops, I screwed up. But there's gonna be need, need to be systems developed to, uh, Similar to Wikipedia, where certain editors eventually get kind of more trusted over time, you're going to need trust systems to sit on top of the distributed layer in a decentralized manner. So you're going to have to have these kind of, they're, I wouldn't say gatekeepers, but bodies of trust. You can kind of think of them like you might think about a credit union or um, Visa or MasterCard, these networks of kind of fraud prevention, identity management, all that stuff has to be built in there. But having a distributed layer means anyone can come in and write something into it and anyone can get the data out of it, which is very powerful because you're gonna have all these hackers come in, not hackers in the, the bad guy sense, but hackers in the software developer sense, like interesting people who are trying to make collapse, build like an IMDB for music on top of this, or easier ways to get your stuff, when you put it in SoundCloud, it'll also go onto the blockchain and you can see maybe who co-produced this and you can see what they've co-produced, kind of look at like a graph of all this stuff and say, oh, well, 
Imogen used to write with Taylor. Taylor used to write with this person. You can kind of play like the Kevin Bacon game with, <laughs> with this kind of stuff. All right, so another buzzword I feel like I've been hearing a lot besides blockchain is virtual reality. And again, another thing that I feel like you see in headlines and people are broadly talking about it, but no one seems to be getting into the specifics. So what are your thoughts on virtual reality and the music industry? In the future. I've, I've done a few uh, different headsets now. I've done the Oculus, the PlayStation, uh, and the Samsung Gear. I'm still trying to find the HTC one. Uh, but they're all really compelling. And I've seen a lot of pitches about, uh, about concerts and about live performances that you could then go in VR. I wonder if that's finally going to open up that market because I know that there's some certain niche like fish fans and dead fans and I don't know other folks that are really into jam bands that will pay for this kind of live streaming services to watch their their favorite band but I don't think the average consumer is there yet and I wonder if this will be a tipping point I don't know yet I mean it's really compelling it's really cool but it could also just be like not that great <laughs> I, don't know. I mean it's fun, but maybe it loses its 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 cool factor after you do it a couple of times. You're like, oh, okay, I'd rather just be there at the concert. A lot of being at the concert is there, being with your friends and you know having experience and being close to the artist. But some people can't experience that, so I think it's really cool for folks who may have disabilities or uh, are unable to make it for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were talking about Stage It in class one time, and I think it's the cool. Have you heard of Stage It? Yeah, yeah. I'm very I think familiar. it's incredible. I love it, and it just. Uh, it's been around for a while now and it just doesn't seem to be catching on. I think in class that's kind of the conclusion everyone came to is you miss out on that social aspect. And I was like, oh, but it's so convenient and it, like you can reach a, way more people if you can't get to a certain market, but everyone pretty much just shut me down. So It's hard also because the, the actual recording of a live performance is really hard to do well. So I think it has to coincide with better technology on that front. Um, but I still think it's going to be a pretty, it's only going to be good when there's really high production value. Um, and on the lower end, you'd rather just be there. Yeah. So you don't see this as like a threat to the touring industry if it does? I think it's a, it's a creative. I don't think it's a threat. I mean, you know, is HBO doing a live concert series a threat to the, the concert? Probably not. And they'd probably just make a ton more money. People aren't going to be, if they can get tickets to a show, they're not going to be like, ah, I'm just going to stay home and watch it on HBO. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like VR would be more a supplement to other things. I think it'll kill, it may very well kill HBO's ability to do live concerts if someone else takes that space. I could also see HBO very well do and owned that, that segment. Um, you know, they freed up a lot of their technology teams freed up fired but um, <laughs> uh, they you know they went in and, and worked with MLB Advanced Media which is the same folks who do uh, all the all the um, baseball and hockey and a bunch of other stuff so I think that they're looking to the future I'm sure MLB Advanced Media is also going to do crazy things in VR as well and they've certainly got the technology teams to do it uh, they're a fascinating company as a case study if you're if you ever are interested in how media businesses fail and simultaneously succeed at technology. <laughs> Yet at the same time, the owner of Oculus Rift, which is a leading VR uh, company, is Facebook. Yep. And Facebook right now is really pushing Facebook Live. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if you can combine Facebook Live with, with their VR, which I'm sure Zuckerberg has thought three steps beyond that, um, then you have the social, you have 
that now you're talking about maybe not a killer, but you're talking about something very strong to keep people on Facebook, which is keeping people away from HBO, keeping them away from Absolutely. cable. You know, so yeah, yeah HBO has always been about exclusives, and and same with most of cable. So this goes back to the windowing and mm -hmm. exclusive you know argument you know music is particularly hard to do that but when you add video content to it it makes it a lot simpler vivo for example is still a pretty exclusive network uh, i'd say i remember you know when michael jackson passed away I remember there was a lot of talk about doing like a virtual reality tour do you think that's kind of maybe where this is really going to take off when like past artists bringing that back and maybe doing almost like virtual tours with them I think there's going to be super bands that will pay for anything. Uh, I thought the Tupac hologram was kind of cool. I'm sure we'll see more of that. Uh, you know, it, it begs the question of uh, what, what is, how much is too much? Mm -hmm. And along those lines, I was thinking, you know, we have the copyright is a lifetime plus 70 years. So are we going to see a push if we're able to kind of reproduce this live aspect on those properties, are we gonna see a push, do you think, to extend that, or just gonna be a transfer of the state, maybe? I think you'll have to ask Disney, <laughs> because they're pretty good at extending that. I think that's, you know, when they feel like they wanna spend their billion dollars lobbying or whatever, or if they really wanna go for it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it begs the question, I don't know. Seven years is a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people are trying to evade that as much as possible by giving their kid 0.01% of their track, yeah. uh, which I think is a really savvy move. I, I don't know if that will change in our generation because I think it was the last give was a very big give. I think it was a 35 to 70, I think. Yeah. So uh, we'll see. I, I don't know if we'll see it in our generation. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. All right, so I know we're running out of time. So do you have any, I guess, advice to just new artists? how they can really use technology and the new technology coming out to really make themselves noticed and push their careers. It's very easy to, to jump on all these tools and do all these, you know, all these little little web apps and stuff, but you need them at different times in your career. You're gonna need a publisher at a certain point, you're gonna need to, uh, to release your music at a certain point. Just make sure you're not just doing everything all at once at the expense of, uh, you know, actually making music. <laughs> um, but I think today, you know, technology is great, but it doesn't doesn't hurt to also just do a lot of stuff in person. You need to go meet a lot of people in the industry. You need to have friends that are caring about what you care about in the industry. You need to meet people who are doing similar things as you, from as a writer, and very different things as you, as an artist, so on and so forth. Um, my biggest advice to early early songwriters is to you know establish relationships with everyone you can that works at labels, that works at PROs, that works at publishers. And if you don't live in an area that you can't do that, still try to you know promote yourself and um, take trips as much as you can and go to those big areas um, and hone your craft and find the niche. Um, let's go back to publishing. There's a, another sort of buzz phrase going around, neighboring rights. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, neighboring rights and you know just kind of what the, what they are yep. and how because the, apparently you know there's a lot more money that's growing in that yeah. field. So yeah, we actually own a neighboring rights business at downtown, and we're with about 30 different countries. Neighboring rights are, are around the actual master recording and the musicians, the featured artists, and the folks who play on the record, as well as the master holder, which is either yourself or the label typically, or another rights management company. 
uh, if you've sold it or something, for example. And most of those rights do not exist if you record the record in the United States. Most of the rights exist if you record outside of the United States. You can get sound exchange money in America from Sirius XM and Live 365 and a couple others uh, here in the States, but there are a lot of different rights in different countries if you record the album in the UK or Northern Europe and you can make pretty significant money if you're getting played on radio, whereas in America they don't have that right. It's because we didn't sign a treaty that uh, basically would have enacted this that uh, you know a couple other really great countries like Iran and North Korea, I believe, didn't sign the, the, mm-hmm. the, the commitment of the treaty. So, you know, we we're, we're really want, as publisher and that owns neighboring rights, we'd love to have more, more of them and, and make America eligible. But uh, there's a lot of lobbying power by the radio stations to prevent that. And I'm not Scott Bursetta, <laughs> so mm-hmm. who has done a deal in America with Taylor Swift to basically get artist royalties uh, off radio. Uh, at the expense of maybe his digital royalties or her digital royalties, I should say. But uh, you know, we, we're, we're not all him, so right. we'll see. So the neighboring rights—it's uh, the performance right for recording artists. It's not a publishing. So and, and it's the growth of that overseas, as opposed to here, which you mentioned. Uh, you get it from Sound Exchange, Sirius XM, Live Six Three Sixty Five, Pandora. Correct. For example. Yeah, the, the, some of the bigger ones are PPL, uh, and then. I think it's called a, a CAD in Canada is one of them. Some of them are multiple ones. There's maybe one for producers, one for artists, one for vocalists. Some of them are affiliated with like the local uh, AFTRA, which is like the, the uh, basically the union of, of uh, actors typically, and it's, or sometimes resides under there. It's a very complex right, um, but if you're big enough to get it, it can be very lucrative. Hmm. And the only way that'll grow here is if. Radio it's going to continue to grow, it. but it's not going to grow at even close to the XUS uh, amount because we just don't have the same rights. Now, what about, uh, and this will be, we have still a couple minutes left, the Spotify question. They had the uh, class action lawsuits against them by the National Music Publishers Association. And no, who is it? Uh, what's his it's, name? It's, uh, uh, David, David Lowry. Lowry. Yeah. And, and so um, okay. the, the NMPA has created a settlement that uh, publishers are able to opt into. And this lets them go into a claiming uh, pool and try to claim uh, streams that, you know, basically find, find recordings that might be associated with their composition. Um, and the, the money is also from, you know, those royalties plus a kind of a kicker to incentivize the publishers to do it. Um, you know, all of my clients have had their songs registered at the Slingshot uh, company, which is the agency uh, charge of Harry Fox Agency. It's a a part of Harry Fox Agency that basically helps uh, Spotify pay out royalties. Now, so none of my clients are likely to be infringing unless somehow something got screwed up in the data transmission or something, which is unlikely. And the, the Lowry lawsuits are interesting. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't go too deep into it, but Presumably, if they have registered their copyrights at the copyright office and they were not served what's called a notice of intent, then they may be infringing. Now, is it willful infringement? Some people have the uh, the thought in the space about, you know, if Spotify has paid 99.9% of the royalties out or attempted to, is that willful? Probably not. I don't know. Can we go to a jury and say, look, here's a company that really tries to pay royalties out and does so everywhere else around the world. Are they willfully infringing? I don't know. Um, so we'll see if that ever gets ratified. It's not even a ratified class action lawsuit yet. And 
my, from the lawyers that I have talked to about this who've kind of given me their armchair quarterback opinion, uh, they tend to think that, well, if there's an existing settlement that a lot of people opt into, the court and the judges will say, well, we'll just settle, you know, it's already settled. Just go over there. There's already a big enough class of people that have agreed to the settlement. The, the problem is that they basically the, the Copyright Office has created an impossible standard to achieve uh, in our current setup. Uh, you know, streaming services really kind of need to be able to offer all the music in the world. And is it a willful infringement when people are distributing, mostly the, the, the aggregators, so like TuneCore and CD Baby to them, um, with information that may not be perfect because they're, the people who are uploading it just don't know all these intricacies in the business. They don't know that their publisher is not actually ASCAP. <laughs> it's themselves most of the time. Um, and so there's a lot of data confusion. But the actual uh, dollar value of all this, uh, this you know, confusion is really quite low. And if you use a, a, a good publisher or if you use a company like SongTrust, we're going to actually get all that money for you if there's any money out there. So it's really... You know, to me, while I'm I'm huge champion of artists and songwriter rights, you know, I I look to this as like, oh, you didn't fill out the paperwork, and now you're complaining about not filling out the paperwork, um, which is a bummer. I mean, you know, I, I want to get make sure everyone gets paid, and so does Spotify. I think they really want to make sure everybody gets paid. They care a lot about songwriters and musicians over there. They're really, a, you know. They do care about it, and all—I mean, anyone who works in all these DSPs—I don't think there are anyone out there really trying to screw anyone. They really want to build this economy and make sure people can still play music and and tour and make really great stuff. Now, could we get better rates? Yeah, you know, <laughs> hey, <laughs> we all like better rates. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the future. Do Getting, we have time for yeah, one more better. question? Yeah, one more very quick question, yes. Okay, so at, at a publisher, I feel like a lot of students and a lot of musicians, they don't understand that you have like a record deal, but you also have a publishing deal, which is equally as valuable or more valuable, depending on how you look at it. So how would you recommend um, someone trying to seek out a publishing deal? I think the best way is, is through a, a warm third party, someone who knows someone at the publisher. The best way would probably be through uh, if you're co-writing with someone who's already with that publisher, that's huge because they already have a good relationship there. Uh, it's always nice as a publisher to get the other side of a, of a you know composition. So if, say, you and I are writing 50-50 and I'm with Downtown and you're not, and it becomes a hit, we're going to come after you because we want the other <laughs> side of that because it makes our lives a lot easier. And we get to do the same amount of work for twice the money, which we love. <laughs> so we get a lot of deals coming in through lawyers. We get a lot of deals coming in through... Uh, through managers, through labels we work with, and we're also putting them to labels and to managers if they're a really developing artist. Then we also have A&R scouts. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, we're, we also comb through the, you know, the, the haystacks to try to find those needles, but most, the easiest way is to come through a warm recommendation, someone who's worked with us before or vouched for you or, you know, has someone we trust, you know, it could even be a, uh, someone in the press be like, have you seen this guy? It's a really cool album or, you know, it's all about building your, your, your personal brand and you know knowing that you have good music and getting that to the people and not being annoying about it. Um, don't just throw your CD in someone's hand. We don't even have CD players anymore, let's be real. Uh, I think maybe we have a couple CD players left at the, at the whole office now. So um, you know, the best way really is through someone warm and being really nice and, and being helpful. And um, that's, that's how we like to work with people. We like to work with people who are good to work with and nice people. You know, we don't want to work with, with jerks and 
we just want to make sure we're, we're treating everyone well, and that's really kind of our, our ethos as a company in general. Joe Conyers III, you just treated us very well. Well, yeah. that was really good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate Joe Conyers doing this. This was really great. This Thank you so much really, for having me. Really great. We want yeah. to thank Samantha Shank getting her MBA in music management for booking this. Thank you, yeah. Samantha Shank. This is very, this is really good. And this would be great to listen back to. And uh, mm -hmm. this is one of those things that you'll hear three or four times. times. Yeah. And we have, there's a lot there. So we cool. appreciate that, Joe. Awesome. And we want to thank Dr. Esteban Marconi for being here and making this program happen because you're great at it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So sorry, no, we're getting in the way of your. But it'll go. And in, yeah, wait. important. Still texting about Halsey and his daughter. No, and, uh, no. And then um, thank me. It's your turn to thank me. No. Okay. <laughs> and I, uh, good for me for um, being here. So, um, Joe, at the end of every one of these, we do not say hello because we've done that already. But we do not say goodbye because that would be a Beatles song. But we say <laughs> one word, and it is in Espanol. You may have heard it before. It's the opposite of hello. It is adios. adios.